Welcome to episode 162 of Control the Controllables. And today's guest has played a massive role in the career of the great Ash Barty, who unfortunately aged 25 has retired from tennis a few weeks ago, shocking the tennis world. And to get Mark Taylor onto the podcast so soon after that, to share his insights, to share his stories, to really find out what it's like to work with the amazing Ash Barty was was incredible. Everything that you kind of see on TV is pretty much how she she lives her life. Very, very, very low-key, very low, very high standards, but very low low demanding and and very understanding of you know it wasn't just myself who was employed by tennis australia her physio team we all we obviously all had other other things to do and and she was always very professional and very understanding of that um yeah i i I literally i couldn't speak higher about and of course that's not all that mark beef taylor and you'll find out why he's called mark beef taylor as well you know he worked at the lta for many years he's a big part of tennis australia He's a great guy. He brings amazing stories, amazing insights, and is another brilliant controller controllables guest. I'm going to pass you over to Mark Beef Taylor. So, Mark mm. Taylor, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, looking forward to it. It's great to have you on. And 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 as we're going to go into your story, I I, I do think a starting point though, 2022. What a year that has been for you, you know, starting starting the year, you know, as part of the a big part of the Ash Barty 2022 Australian Open title. And then a few weeks later, the, the retirement that shocked the tennis world. How's how's that few months been for yourself? Um, yeah, mate. So I guess um, yeah, the start of the year was was pretty unbelievable. Um I guess first up, my my kind of role, um, I was never fully employed by Ash. Um, so I worked for Tennis Australia um, as the head of physical preparation, physical performance. Um, so my Januarys generally look obviously, you know, very Ash centric, but also, um, yeah, the rest of the pro guys and girls that I work with um, and um, some coaches that I kind of I kind of manage beyond that. So they're always very, very busy. Um, yeah, I could, we obviously started in uh, we started in Adelaide. Um, it fourth kind of fell into place there. She played great, winning singles and doubles. Um, had a really good preseason actually before that, obviously. Um, yeah, singles and doubles, unbelievable. And then, um, yeah, things just kept on just kind of coming together. And and she just, uh, yeah, just kept on winning in, in, uh, in Melbourne as well. It's always quite fun. Like, um, yeah, she's she was never wanting too much of my time. Um, so we had a we have a really good system or we had a really good system around kind of how I would spread my time between her and the other, the other pros I work with. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of um, pretty much just meet up every day at Melbourne, um, go through the same warm up, the same fun and games that probably some people saw. There's a little bit of cricket played and normally as an Englishman, I'm normally the butt of the joke. And um, yeah, she would bowl me out three or four times in the warm up, and um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd have the piss taken out of me, and and then we crack on and warm up, and then yeah, it felt very, it, it was great fun, but it felt like yeah, just another day at the office to be honest. And then obviously as we we kind of went through, um, it just got better and better, and it and it just kind of it did just feel like it was all kind of falling into place, and and the way that she won at the end was, yeah, it was a cool way to win, wasn't it? To come back from incredible, you know, yeah. 
five one down in the, in the second and and win it that way. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a hell of a hell of a couple of weeks um, for Australian it, tennis. And I think it says that quite simple story. I think tells us a lot though, because you know the things that jump to my mind. You know, we're talking about, I mean, three-time Grand Slam champion, world number one, and she's not demanding that much time from, mm. from an S&C coach. You know, you, I, I, we have 10, 11-year-olds at the, at the academy here in Spain who are almost demanding like a one-on-one mm. S&C, S&C setup and, and almost the humility that seems to, you know, be at the core of everything she, she does. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not just what we see on TV. It's, it's actually how it is, huh? No, it really wasn't. It was, um, yeah, everything that you kind of see on TV is pretty much how she she lives her life. Very, very, very low key, very low, very high standards, but very low, low demanding and, and very understanding of, you know, it wasn't just myself who was employed by Tennis Australia, her physio team. Um, it was a guy based in Brisbane and our lead physio in Melbourne spent a lot of time with her. Um, we all, we obviously all had other other things to do, and, and she was always very professional and very understanding of that. Um, yeah, I, I, I literally I couldn't speak higher about. I think it's a really good model for people to understand as well, and I think it's important to probably get that out there that you know you can be the best in the world, and, and as long as you manage your time and you manage your energy and and you have great communication, and that's what her and Ties had. To be honest, like they always planned very very well. Um, we always kind of knew where we needed to be even little things like just sending through schedule for the next day. Here's my practice times. Here's my media times. Here's everything I'm going to do. Um, we actually got into a, a bit of a habit of, of sending emojis that kind of meant different things for different, um, different parts of the day um, yeah. in terms of warming up and, and things. And, and she would just lead that. Um, and yeah, it was very much like, obviously, you know, she wasn't directly my boss in terms of employing me, but in terms of her leading the ship, her and ties were obviously leading the ship and, yeah, and the rest of us, yeah, we just played our part, to be honest. And and in terms of in your role at Tennis Australia, I guess best practice, if you've got your your superstar who mm. who who acts in in such a humble way, have, have you found that it's been then easier to start pushing that down down the chain? Um, I think so. I think definitely with the players who are based in Brisbane. Um, we have a number of, of younger female pros based in Brisbane, and I think they obviously spend a lot of time around Ash and, and around myself in training and, and at tournaments. Um, and they, they're all very similar characters. Like they're all extremely humble. Whether it's a Queensland, I think it's a bit of a Queensland thing as well. Um, I haven't found many Queenslanders with a big ego, honestly. Um, I think that's a really good trait of, of a lot of Queenslanders. Like Johnny Millman would be the same. James, yeah. uh, James Duckworth is... From Sydney, he wouldn't he wouldn't want me to say that, but um, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of those guys and some of our younger female professionals are, are very similar, very uh, unassuming and and very small egos. Uh, and it makes it quite easy to work with. I mean, one thing we do, I try to kind of preach and and tell the story of is how each professional kind of is the CEO of their own business, um, and they should be. And you know, the model that Ash kind of employed there with, you know, just great communication of letting the team know you know where she's going to be what her you know what she might need from us i try to encourage every younger pro or you know older junior that i work with that's kind of the main space i work with um i try to encourage them to run that same kind of model um i class myself as an advisor or a colleague to probably young pros um i just stole that from someone who works in the nba i thought it was a really good analogy yeah 
yeah, I'm not, I'm not leading them. They're, they're leading their own ship and I'm there to support. And I think that's how, that's how it should be. And, and I'm looking for them to probably take the lead with that. I'll, I'll have my ideas on schedule and, and on direction, but it should be a, it should be a collaborative kind of group thing. And that's exactly how it was with Ash. But I think that also says a lot about you and, and the security that you have in yourself, because what, one thing I've certainly seen over the last 15, 20 years is when younger SNC coaches come in, they, they sometimes want to just overload and throw everything out there that they've learned mm. and dictate and, and play that role. Whereas the successful ones that I've seen, certainly in the sport of tennis, you know, Matt Little jumping to mind as one, yeah. seem to seem to obviously you guys know your stuff from a knowledge standpoint, but you're able to build relationships and play play those roles ex- extremely well as well. And 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 so how do you, I guess in your position, are you mentoring the young SNC coaches to come through as well? And is that something that uh you is is close to your heart? Uh I am, yeah. So I lead the I lead the team at our national tennis academy um and our kind of pro space strength and conditioning coaches. Um and yeah. I don't know how good a job of it I do, to be honest. I, I try to to kind of give as much information as I can. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah I try to just kind of live what I do, and and then kind of um, hopefully hope it rubs off. I probably need to do a better job of actually articulating kind of the way I've done it potentially. But I also see myself. I just see myself still in in the development phase. To be honest, but I don't see myself as an elite coach. It's probably something I struggle with a little bit, even doing things like this. Um, yeah. Honestly. Um, yeah, I just see myself as kind of doing my job and, and kind of go from there. But I mean, don't get me wrong. Like when I was younger, I was probably in that same position as well of kind of coming in and going, look, this is, this is what I know. And this is what we should be doing. Um, I was actually back in England a couple of weeks ago and I caught up with um, Louis Kaya, who yeah. was kind of one of my mentors um, when I was younger. And we were talking about a conversation or let's call it, it was an argument, an argument that we had when I was a young coach at the LTI, I reckon I was probably 25, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it was my way. I knew how to throw a med ball. Louis didn't know what he was talking about. And yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> so um, <laughs> definitely, I actually do. I do tell that story to some of the younger coaches around. You know, Louis was yeah, he wasn't young then, was he? But I mean, by his own admission, he's he's an older and experienced, very experienced coach, and he's probably the coach I've learned most off, to be honest. If there's um, one, if there's one person not to argue with about something knowledgeable it's it's, yeah, it's Louis. Yeah. and i learned that pretty i learned that pretty quickly but it actually yeah we had a really good laugh about it a couple of weeks right. ago we had um, yeah yeah we had we had a coffee and we had a chat about it and it was it was brilliant and kind yeah. of it was a really big learning it was probably a light bulb moment for me yeah to be honest um, yeah. yeah well he still is so like i said before we started your episode i think 163 of this podcast and you know, some of the names that have been on, like world number one, Igish Fiontek, you know, Nick Politeri, you know, those those jump to mind. But so many massive names. The most downloaded episode is still Louis Kaya. And, yep. and, 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 you know, ultimately, I think people can just sit and listen to him. My last quick thing before on, on Ash, before we then circle around it and go back to the start of start of your career, because I think it's a, it's a fascinating mm. 
to understand. And I don't know, you know, I've, I tried to find out beforehand, but it's not so easy to find out things about, about you on Google. So yeah, but, just an SNC coach, <laughs> but, but still, but how, how you got to, got to that point, but in terms of, the, the, the news that shocked the world because, you know, 20, 25 years old, just won, the, won her home Grand Slam. To be honest, it looked like a junior playing a grade three event who was just better than everyone, you know, in their, in their local area. So it looked, everyone obviously is going, right, this girl, she's going to go on and just win the next five, six, seven Grand Slams. She's so much better than everybody. Now, internally... Was it a shock? Was it was it something that you knew was coming? Is it something that you felt might come? You know, how did you find out? Can you talk us through that period for someone who was who was so much closer than obviously the the tennis public? Yeah, I mean, Ash is a very private person, um, which is probably why I think it was a massive shock to a lot of people. Um, yeah, I don't think it's any secret that she's a very family-orientated person and loves to spend time, you know, at home with the dogs and, and with Gary, um, her fiance. Um, she's, I think, and I think that she said it. Her, she said it best. She's always done things her own way. So she had her, she had the things that she wanted to do, um, and she just felt the time was right. And and one thing that I've learned is is that Ash is her own person, does things her own way, and it's her decision, honestly. And I think. Um, I literally, I, I can't fault the decision. I think, yeah, going out, she went out at the time that she wanted to go out and, and I don't think she'll have any regrets at any point, mate. I think, um, yeah, I think she did the right the right thing for her and her family and, and that's the way she's always done it. That's how she lives her life day to day. And I think, yeah, it's, it's as simple as that. When she won the Aussie Open, did you know that it was going to happen? No. Okay. And and what, when was the first time that you found out about it? Uh, a little while later. Yeah. Okay. She'd obviously been thinking about it. Um, yeah. And a, and a little while later. Yeah. And if we take your start into sport, you know, did you have a tennis background? What was your sport when you when you grew yeah. up? I always thought you were Australian. So you know, yeah, I probably sound it as well. I'm starting to. I'm probably starting to sound it. <laughs> so where, so where, so where did your your life start? Where did you grow up? What was your sporting your or your start in the sport? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I'm a Yorkshire. I'm actually a Yorkshire boy, believe right, it or okay. not. Um, okay. North Yorkshire. Probably moved down to um, just close to Ipswich when I was about ten. Um, played tennis. Was actually introduced to the sports by one of my best mates back home. I think, uh, I think I was about 10 or 11. Tried to play, played well. I played a lot of football when I was younger as well. Was was a decent goalie. I'll tell my mates that I could have gone pro with all my... Had a few trials for some different teams and everything. And to be honest, mate, I tried every sport. Yeah. So I played tennis for quite a long time. Played county squads, played like, you know, county cup and things like that. Not very well and not, not for very long because I wasn't very good, to be honest. Um, yeah, never really played nationals or anything. But I can I can rally the bike and I can play. I can hit yeah. up and down and... No, I, I contend I've got a pretty damn good slice back end. I don't go slice to slice with Ash, no problem. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I did that. Um, so obviously was coached a lot. So I had county coaches and county kind of coaching squads. Um, then also tried playing rugby a little bit, a bit of rowing as well. Um, been six foot four and relatively strong. I tried, I tried that. So I tried everything to become a professional athlete. I was always going to be working in sport at some point. Um, then I think I was around 18 or 19 and... 19 or 20. 
and I realized it wasn't going to work in, in rowing because I was actually trying to row at that point. And I was okay. like, this isn't going to work out. Um, and actually, my old one of my old coaches kind of came to me and said, Look, I'm setting up a high performance center in Cambridge at Hills Road. Do you want to come and do some S&C? I was like, okay, well, I'm doing some personal training at that point. So that's what I was doing. I was doing some PT. So I said, yeah, hell yeah, I'll jump at that. And, and I kind of started with him. Um, did probably a, a few years kind of there. And I was lucky enough at that point to probably to meet uh, Matt Little and Narelle, who was Narelle Sibt, who was yeah, the head yeah. of... Yeah, of course, yep. She's obviously an Aussie, who was the head of... Um, actually, it, it actually all comes together at the end as well, this story. Um, so she was the head of S&C for the LTA. And, and I kind of realised... I went down to the NTC, which was kind of newly formed, 2007. I think I went down there in 2008, potentially. Yep. And I was like, shit, this is where I want to be. Like, I want to, I want to work for the LTA. I want to work in elite sport. Um, and Narelle and, and Drinks were obviously, I need to get a degree. So at that point, I went and, and went to St. Mary's University in Twickenham, got my degree. Um, and pretty much luckily enough, from day one of my university course, I was um, I was coaching. So I was actually just, yeah, Narelle kind of got me in as an intern almost straight away. Um, I was really lucky to meet Joey DeBeer, um, who was actually... My boss is head of sports science and medicine here as well. Yeah, him and Treeks and uh, Speedo as well. Who are yep. Steve Kurtzer, who was working. Um, yeah, he's worked with obviously Andy and Kyle and, and everyone as well at the LTA, and they were great. Um, so they they kind of just took me under their wing straight away. So as I was going through my degree, um, I did so much free work. I literally I was there when I wasn't at uni. I was there, just you know picking up cones and picking up weights. And you know Evo called me as. Uh, his weight picker upper, his, his little weight bitch, um, which was quite funny. I think he still says it to me whenever I see him. Um, yeah, so, so pretty much just kind of hung around. And actually at that point, um, obviously Evo was quite young. There were guys like Josh Milton and Neil Porfley and Coxie and all these other kind of guys. And um, their coach at the time, Julian Hoffling, yep. who sadly died a few years ago, yep. um, took a shining to me for whatever reason and um, actually – persuaded our kind of boss Carl Cook at the time to to let me come on a couple of tours with him so I went on a couple of trips um I remember my first trip was to Antalya with Evo it was it was a baptism baptism of fire to be honest and these boys are probably still laughing about it it was Evo Willis Coxie oh. Milts uh Dave Rice I think was there as well um and they ran rings around me honestly it was it was a complete nightmare but we had a we had a laugh and, and I kind of was like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in here. Um, and Julian Hoffman taught me so much, you know, about around just the way that he coached and his kind of feel for the game and everything. And, and that's actually where my, my kind of original nickname beef came from. So, yeah, so he gave me this nickname. So he used to coach Thierry Asione, I think, who yep. was also a relatively big unit. And he, and he said, yeah, his name was Berth. So he, he kind of coined the nickname beef. So it's whenever uh, okay. I get called beef, I actually, uh, I just think of Jules a little bit, oh, which is that's nice, you know, but bittersweet, that's, but it's uh, yeah, but it's good fun. And then yeah, so literally I completed my degree, um, and you know, luckily enough, they kind of created a role for me. So I stayed there from yeah, I was there between you know 2009 and 2014, um, and luckily enough, got exposed to some pretty good players. Um, I actually ended up working with Joe Conta for quite a while um, while she was kind of transitioning between Australian and, and British. Um, which was awesome because I got to work with Louis. That's where I kind of met Louis and yeah. uh, Julian Pico as well. Like I kind of worked with those guys very closely for three years there. And that was, yeah, that was awesome. Like working with Joe, who, you know, the most, probably the most driven athlete I've ever worked with, yeah. honestly. Um, that was fantastic. And 
God, I made a lot of mistakes at that time. A hell of a lot of mistakes. Um, yeah, and then I kind of um, left the LTA kind of end of 2014 and, and went to British Swimming, actually. So Carl oh, Cook, okay. kind of, he'd actually left to become, I think he was head of sports science and medicine at, the, at British Swimming. Um, and actually, yeah, I was lucky enough to get brought in by Carl and, and I worked under him and a fantastic um, coach called Scott Pollock, who had actually just moved down to Brisbane, funnily enough. So I worked with those guys through the Rio Olympics to 20, end of 2016, start of 2017, and then moved to Brisbane after that. And then I guess the story even, it just gets even weirder because I kind of came to Brisbane and I knew of this girl, Ash Barty. I knew she was good because obviously I'd stayed in tennis and I'd stayed doing a little bit of stuff around my swimming, you know, the working up to the, to the Olympics as well. Um, but Narelle got in contact with me again because she'd moved back to Australia. And she was like, look, I've got this girl, Ash Barty, who's been in, she's actually been in Melbourne training with me. Um, but she kind of wants to be back in Brisbane because she's a homebody, as we all know. Um, so I'm looking for someone to kind of transition her to. So I was like, look, I, yeah, I'm literally new on the ground here. I'll absolutely, you know, take her on. Like I know that she's a bloody good athlete, a bloody good tennis player, sorry. And yeah, pretty much the first week I got there, um, Narelle was still writing her programs, but Ash was actually the first week I landed. Ash won her first WTA in Kuala Lumpur, right? Okay, which was kind of which was kind of funny. Like, yeah, obviously had nothing to do with me, but it was kind of ironic that ended up. Um, yeah, Narelle was fantastic. Like she was so open. She was like, like transition Ash to to me, and and we kind of carried on working with a lot of you know, Narelle stuff, and I did all, all the way up until the end of you know, Ash's career because uh, Narelle's unbelievable and I learned so much from her. Um, yeah, so it's funny how that kind of symmetry kind of came about, to be honest. Absolutely. Small world. Well, it is, but, it me. but, the, but the, thing that, the thing that hits me there, and I, if I take you back to what you said, you said you did lots of free work. And, mm. and, and actually, I, I like to call that investment work, you know, because, because – I think there's too many people that don't do that, but the, the stories of people that do do it, look what it's done. You know, it, it's, you know, Carl, the relationship with Carl started there, the, the relationship with Narelle started there, mm. you know, and, and all of those, all of those things ended up being the, the keys to unlock opportunities, you know, for, for, for yourself. You obviously have to be good at what you do, you know, to, to take those opportunities. And, and I just think it's just, a monumental lesson for for youngsters that are, that are out there that mm. that are, that are, that are coming in and demanding to be paid x y and z and doing this i've always believed to get to the next level you've almost got to give you give a little bit of time or, or a lot of time to to learn your trade and then and then it opens up so many doors um so Absolutely. so yeah. thanks for, thanks for sharing that story cuz i think it's a couldn't agree more it's a yeah. one that I think should really resonate with people. And what in, in mm. terms of in terms of an SNC coach, now that you've you know you've got good experience and you humbly say you're still developing, which we we, we all are, what's what is the secret to to being a, a good SNC coach? Uh, if I ever find out, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> I think um, I think just trying to just look at yourself with a bit of a critical eye, but also actually I'll go back and I'll actually say that. Yeah, we've all got egos. Like we all like to think that we're really important, but I think as strength and conditioning coaches, physios, nutritionists, etc., we're a support service. Yeah. So we are not the main event. So strength and conditioning is not the main event. 
tennis is the main event or whichever sport you're working in, to be honest, is the, is the main event. And it's around the player and the coach. It's their world. You know, those guys, you know, I've been in tennis for years, but you guys know it better than I do. So we're there to support and to add some value. And I think if you don't come into wherever you're working, knowing that if you, if you think it's all about you and all about, um, all about strength and conditioning and, and, you know, kilos on the bar or seconds off a, you know, change direction effort, which is all great. Don't get me wrong. If you think it's just about that, then you're probably going to fail in a performance yeah. environment, to be honest. So I think number one thing, even before you've got any kind of knowledge or any expertise in, you know, how to make someone jump, you know, jump higher, sprint faster, change direction better or move better out the corners. Like I think you need to probably understand that. Um, and that's something, again, that I try to, to kind of impart on younger coaches all the time is we're a support service. We're not the main event. S and C is not the main event. If someone squats 120 kilos, that's great. And it might help, it might help their performance, but it's not the performance. Um, and, and tons of better S and C coaches than me have said that and I've stolen it and run with it. And I think it's, I think it's right, honestly. So that would be probably my first part. Yeah. The second part would be, I think, yeah, having a really good basic skill set of, of strength and conditioning. So I always say that I'm pretty sure that most good SNCs can work in most sports, to be honest. Yeah. So you, but what you need to do is be able to coach the basics. So you need to understand how to get people stronger. You need to understand how to get people fitter, faster, coach. You need to understand how to coach. Um, so you have to understand technical models of things you're trying to do. Very important. Um, then the other thing is the the kind of the last 20%. So that's kind of the 80% for me. It's, it's yeah, the bread and butter of strength and conditioning. Um, if somebody's, yeah, if somebody's weak, can you make them stronger? If somebody's unfit, can you make them generally fitter? Because actually some people can't who think they are coaches. And then the last 20% is, yeah, how do you apply that to the sport and how do you understand what the sport and the athlete requires? And that's the hard part. Like, yes. That's the really, really hard part for me. Um, so, yeah, a lot of very good general coaches out there. But if you don't have that and you can't do the last bit, in my opinion, or you don't do it very well. So there's a lot of very good people who have got very good tennis eyes, but actually don't have the basic requirements for a strength and conditioning coach. So they can actually diagnose faults and things, but they actually can't develop a general athlete. Yeah. Um, so they can look at specific movement, which is all good. It's all well and good. But if you've got nothing underpinning it, or you can't develop anything underpinning it, it almost doesn't matter, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so you need both to be a, a very good SNC coach. Um, and, and again, a, a large part of that would be observation skills and also the ability and the willingness to spend time in the sport, get out on the court, yep. spend, stand next to you. What do you see? Yeah. What can I help with? Yeah. What's this? What's this player's issue? What's this athlete's issue? And then also just watching the sport on TV, yep. to be honest. Because, yeah, I think a lot, a lot of coaches might not do that. You know, if you're working in if you're working in wheelchair basketball, you need to go out and watch. If you're working in swimming, you need to go and watch. Like that was probably the biggest thing for me. So yeah, swimming I'd never really spent any time in, and I had to just go and sit poolside and understand and learn the sport. Um, we've actually got a couple of new physios who just started with us who are fantastic practitioners, great people. Um, they kind of asked me actually I had a conversation with one today, and they said, you know, what's the biggest bit of advice for me? And I said, look, whether you're a physio in SNC, if you're new to the sport, you need to go and spend time in the sport. You need to understand what the coaches and the athletes are looking at and, and feeling and, and understand the, you know, the tournament structure, the point structure, the lingo, you know, understand what an open science forehand is, things like that. Like just, just those small things and understand the terminology and the lingo. And it applies to which, SNC as well. Which, which, which it, it, it's, again, honestly, it's, a, it's another amazing answer. 
and with so many learnings in it. And, and it's, I guess, for me, from, from my point of view, being the tennis coach, when I, when I think about the relationships I've had with S&C coaches over the years, it's always started with a personal a relationship. Mm. <laughs> now, you know, how do you build, well, how do you build a relationship? Well, if, if, if someone's coming in with some humility and is mm. coming in and saying, I'm here to support you, that's already not a bad start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're then they're then coming and standing with you, spending time with you, showing a willingness to learn. You know, now we're in. <laughs> and yeah. and 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 what I think once the tennis coach is in, you know, like you say, it tends to be then you can actually get your good stuff through. <laughs> and you, you know exactly. whereas yeah. if there's a if there's a bit of a battle going on for for who's who's the boss and who's mm -hmm you know, as you say, with the ego that, that comes into these things, it, the, the relationship ultimately doesn't work well enough to help the person that we're all there to help, uh, which, which Absolutely. is the player. So it's, mm. it's, it's brilliant advice. And I, um, I don't get it right all the time and I still get it wrong, honestly, yeah. in, in new kind of new setups and new environments. I sometimes still get it wrong, especially in my, maybe not so much in my coaching role, but actually in my management role. Yeah. I've probably got it wrong a few times recently where I've kind of come in and almost been like, look, I'm going to come in over the top here and give my two cents. And, and probably I haven't actually spent the time with the coach. So it's, it's obviously an SNC coach who potentially reports to, or who does report to me, who's working with a coach and they might have a disagreement on something. And I'll kind of, I've definitely done it recently where I've kind of come in and gone, look, this is what I, this is what, this is what you, you should listen to. Listen to me. Like, yeah, yeah, this is my experience. This is what it is, but I actually haven't, I hadn't actually spent the time in cultivating a good enough relationship with that coach for me to be able to say that. So that was actually a recent learning for me. Yeah. So it's never, a, it's never finished like the job of, of learning and making mistakes and then no. yeah, learning again. I think it's, it's never done. And, and, and every relationship's different. And exactly. Uh, every and person's different. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think so. So that's, I think that's one of the, one of the other things. And in terms of, a more, I guess, more general conversation around SNC in tennis. Mm -hmm. You know, if we talk about data, you know, we talk about these things that are becoming more accessible. You know, there's yep. definitely more in there. Where, in your opinion, where do you see that going? Is that, you know, what, what what's next? And, you know, how do we yeah. kind of extract and, and progress it even further? Yeah. So, again, I have this conversation a lot. I think, um, Tennis is 10 years behind the other sports yeah. for the most part in terms of collecting and using data. And I, and I probably mean actually not so much on the match stats because I think we're pretty good at that. Um, and I think Hawkeye is making that better every year. But what Hawkeye, I don't think, does unbelievably well and, and what tennis doesn't do particularly well is track the player. Yeah. So this is something that I know that Matt Little's banging the drum on and something that Matt and I talk about quite a lot. Yeah. Um, obviously using different kind of GPS products to, you know, track the player and understand the actual the physical cost of what's going on yeah. that's what i'm interested in right now so right now i you know i i know what good movement looks like i know what elite movement looks like i think i think i've got a pretty good understanding of that i don't understand the physical cost as well as i probably could do and that's something that we're probably focusing on quite hard right now yeah. is understanding you know what the physical cost of movement is um what is a typical what does a match look like in terms of you know high intensity movements you know what does you know what does a forehand on the run look like what are the you know what are the underpinning 
physical capacities needed to do that really well. Again, I think we have a pretty good understanding, you know, just kind of uh, implicitly from experience, but I don't think we have too much data underpinning it. Whereas, you know, if you look at other sports, you know, they've, they've probably spent a lot more time looking at those kind of things. Um, so in terms of physical data, I think that's where it's going. It's not so much most of my time and effort and, you know, minimal brain power kind of goes into trying to work out that. Whereas probably 10 years ago, it was more around like all, it was all around fitness testing data. Yeah. How, you know, how fast are they, et cetera. That's still important for yeah. me. Cause again, like I've, I've said before, I think there's a minimum, a minimum standard of physical competency you need to be able to perform at an elite level. Um, but yeah. then it's yeah trying to understand what's going on. Um, yeah. What's kind of, yeah. What's the physical cost of what's going on um, and, and how does that affect the outcome? So yeah even things like trying to link that up to um, trying to link up physical stats. So things like, you know, number of high intensity accelerations and decelerations and change of direction, uh, link those up with video and look at when do they occur? I think, again, I think implicitly we all know when they occur, but actually being able to pinpoint and go, look, this is this, this is what it looks like. This is what it costs. Um, and then I think in terms of moving the field forward, it's almost, okay, well, we can do that and we can do it better. What's the outcome? So I think I did see a stat a couple of years ago. Someone was talking about how much better Serena was moving since she had her baby. And there were some stats flying around around um, points one when she goes and hits the ball outside the doubles tram line. So when she's obviously on, on the kind of full run. Um, so I think metrics like that, I haven't just seen it too much recently, but metrics like that, where you're kind of linking in that physical capacity to you know, a match outcome or a point outcome is, is probably where we need to go. Um, and and probably using using a bit of a bit of machine learning and some some kind of stuff that's way above my level of intellect to uh, to work out yep. is probably where it's heading. I think. Can you give us a <clears throat> can you give us a basic example of you talk about the physical cost and maybe mm. just describe that a little bit for the listeners as well. But the the, the physical cost that, that's that's going in into a certain movement a certain mm. A certain part of the game and how you then take that data to then either apply that in the, in the training room or, yep. or, or apply that in terms of an advice that you might give to a coach as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so we're using a, a GPS product at the moment. I won't name the name, um, but we're using a GPS product pretty well. Yep. It's pretty well known, um, which allows us to track the kind of the acceleration and deceleration of an athlete. So, decelerations obviously if you think about you're on a full run and then you slam the brakes on and stop they generally have a pretty high cost in terms of it's stressful so it's it's almost the stuff that causes a bit of damage and makes you a little bit sore um same with acceleration so if you think about acceleration like if you're accelerating hard there's an energy cost for that as well so we can we can kind of track those things um and obviously they result in a change of direction so what i've become relatively obsessed with i think it's fair to say if you ask anybody who knows me now um is actually looking at when those events occur so for example one one thing i'm kind of focusing on right now is a tactical situation such as a girl will be rallying cross court from the backhand corner potentially and then the other girl goes you know hard kind of laser backhand down the line and then our girl has to run hard into the corners yep. you know obviously execute a skill at high speed slam the brakes on and then re, you know, re-accelerate in a recovery step. 
first thing I want to know and why we're using this uh, this technology is yeah what's the what's the actual speed and and what's the speed that occurs and what happens. So what that then does is allow me to look at our training week and look at our training sessions and say, do we actually train that in the week? Because I kind of had a bit of a suspicion that we didn't train it very much. Yeah. Um, we can't wear GPS in most match situations. I think you can in ICFs now. Um, so we don't have full match data, but we do have a lot of simulated match data. And so we can kind of pick out those events. And, and I kind of had a bit of an idea that we weren't really training it. We were kind of spending a lot of time doing volume work and doing, you know, two cross one line, those kind of things, but not really putting them in that situation. Yep. Um, so I kind of went back and, you know, we looked as a team at, you know, a couple of different players and we worked out that let's say in a match, they might do 60 or let's 80 high intensity movements of which a lot of those are going to be going hard into a, into a corner, but in a training week, they might do 80 in total. So are we actually, the question then comes in my head, are we actually preparing these players for match play? Hmm. Um, or are we just preparing them to be able to be able to smooth it up and down or, or drill two cross one line? Yep. But then we'll talk about how bad they are in the corners defensively. And we'll say, go and do a movement session. That's great. But do we actually do that in training? Yeah. So what it kind of allowed us to that. do. We love seeing that in our yeah. industry. Player doesn't get in yeah. and out of corners very well. We love that. It's the it's, you go to a new player, you say, what do you want to do? I want to get better in the corners. Okay. Well, do you actually train it? Oh, I do movement sessions and that's all well and good. Like we can all go throw med balls and do things like that, but do we yeah. actually create drills to actually train that with live ball? Yeah. And that's what, and that's kind of what it allowed us to do was to actually create some drills, yeah. create a couple of drills. They're very simple drills just to allow us to actually train that. And yeah. And yeah, we, we use that across most of our pro women. Do you, is there a way, yeah. I'm just kind of thinking outside the box a little bit here, is there a way of you doing that but taking into account the match stress as well? You know, because I would imagine like playing yeah. in a match and the nerves and the, the stress that goes alongside that, mm. I, I would imagine adds to the physical nature of it as well. Definitely. If you can find a way to quantify it, I'd love to know because <laughs> I honestly don't, <laughs> I yeah. don't know. We, we talk about it a lot. Yeah. Um, the difference also between training and matches. I mean, the one thing that we can probably, you know, this is called control the control, but the one thing that we can control is the amount of physical stress and the physical effort that we put in in training. Yeah. Um, and if we are not training in and out the corners, then we're probably leaving something on the table. Um, I guess the way in terms of quantifying it, short of, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That's for somebody who's way smarter than me to uh, to probably come up with. Um, yeah. But it, it, but it, but it definitely has an effect. I mean, you don't see too many players cramping in practice. That's one no. thing that we always talk about. Yeah, that's true. Know? Yeah. So there has to be some kind of element of psychological yeah. stress and fatigue that kind of comes in there, which which probably has an element. Again, a physiologist might shoot me down, but yeah, we don't see too many crampings in uh, yeah, yeah. in practices when they've had a similar external load. So they've had a similar amount of sprints or end range, end range kind of forehands and backhands. You know, under stress repeat efforts, you know, off 20, 30 second recoveries and they're not cramping. Yeah. So maybe there's something in that. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to, to Ash, I want to ask you a couple more things on, on Ash, more in terms of your work with her in, in a practical sense. Was she somebody that bought into, into the data? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again. Yeah. She won't mind me saying this. She, she used to refer to herself as my intern. Right. a little bit like yeah. she was so 
she was so interested in training and about how, you know, why I'm prescribing her what I was prescribing. And this is exactly, you know, you can imagine it. This is what you want as a coach. Yeah. You want somebody who really wants to know, you know, what they're doing and why, um, how it's affecting them. Um, yeah. You literally tell her something and she gets it straight away. Yeah. Um, or she'll go and she'll even like go and maybe read something on it. And this is probably something that people didn't kind of realize about her. Yeah. She was, she was, um, she didn't really, she never really wanted to know too much around the numbers, but yeah. we did. And she was very, you know, she was great in allowing me to, and us to, to try some different things around, yeah, how we monitor her. And, um, and, 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 my, and yeah. my, my last question on her, and then I want to move, I'm conscious of your time as well, Mark, mm. is one thing I used to love, and I, I, I love listening to player interviews. I, I, I just think mindset, you learn so much. The same with, actually, a bit of a side note, but the same with football managers. You know, I remember like when Frank Lampard came in a few weeks ago, I was like, he's blaming the players in week one. Like, what the hell? You know, and, and, and it just, for me, showed a massive insecurity. It showed all of those things. And the one word I always used to hear with Ash, always, always, was we, 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 mm. we, we. Is, was that something she worked on or was that just something that's just very natural with her that she has that appreciation for it being almost a team sport? Um, yeah, I mean, it's no secret that she spent some time in some team sports um, yeah. and, and loves team sports. You know, she loves AFL, she loves cricket. Um, but to be honest, I've never had a conversation around why she uses that. It was always just there. As soon as I came in and met her for the first time, kind of mid-2017, she was always referring to it as we. Um, so I never really kind of questioned it. But I, I guess, you know, a bit's been made of it in the media. Um, and I think it's it's so normal. It's so It just seems so normal to me to hear yeah. someone say we. Um, you know, it's kind of shared accountability, but also... Yeah, we're all on the same journey together. But but if we go, if we take that as well for you, so for someone, you are the support team. You're mm. not employed by her. That there could be, and and I'm sure lots of players would make you feel like you are. Sorry, Evo. Mm. Evo said it. The the bitch boy who just comes and does X, Y, or Z. So that surely must have made you feel like you were part of something special and then you're going to go the extra, the extra yards as well as when, when, when the player is constantly referring to an appreciative of the team that's around her. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's, that's only natural, isn't it? Yeah. Um, by the way, I think that's probably something that Evo does pretty well as well <laughs> right now is, uh, is. Yeah, refer to, refer to his team who, who've done a great job with him. Yeah. Yeah. No, Evo, he still hasn't uh, kind of reached the ceiling. Um, well, again, yeah. and, and I think it's quite a common trait in quite a lot of players is that loyalty and that, you know, and I know it's something that, yeah. that Evo's got in absolute abundance and he's got a big loyalty as well. He's been, he's been on this podcast three or four times. So mm. um, he's, he's come on and he's, he's given his time to people as well on this. And he's always he's good been, value. He's, he's, <laughs> that's one thing you can guarantee with, with, with Dan <laughs> Evans. Um, and so what's, what's next for you? I guess, I guess when I came on to this call, uh, one of the questions I had, which I quickly scribbled out was you lost your job, but you didn't, 
because your yeah, your your exactly. jobs your jobs stayed the same. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you've made, you've made that very clear. So yeah, so what's next for you? You you're you're going to be working more as a, as a coach with players, more in a management role. Um, you're a you're an English lad. Is is Australia mm. the place for you? Are we going to see yeah. you come back over the over that this way? What's what what's the next few years look like for you? I guess on that yeah, you never say never. Yeah, yeah. You never, you never say. I'm, I'd never say I'm anchored to one spot forever. Um, I am enjoying it, and we are. Yeah, me and my fiance, who's actually English, we're we're really enjoying it. Um, she moved out with me five years ago now, right, so just right. just over five years. So yeah, we're we're loving it out here, and and yeah, Australia is all it, all it's kind of cracked up to be, mate. It's it's good over here. We're enjoying it. Um, so I'll never. Yeah, I won't say never, but right now we're pretty happy. Um, but in terms of yeah, my I'm a coach. Like I I do manage a few a few coaches. I think it's probably the weaker side of what of my skill set. It's something I need to work on and do and do better because I don't do it well enough. Um, because I'm still learning that massively. Um, but I will. Uh, I'm a coach at heart, and I love to coach. So yeah, I still have my my stable of players that I guess I work with. You know, and keeps me very very busy. Uh, probably makes me neglect the co- uh, the management side of my job sometimes for for better or worse. But I love to coach, and I love to kind of help help out the players. Um, I just want to really take some of the lessons that I've learned, you know, from Ash and Ties. Like I've been so lucky to learn from those two and actually some of the extended team and, and Ash's family, actually. Um, been very lucky to kind of, to learn some some pretty good lessons from those guys and girls. So I kind of just want to try to transfer those through to the next generation. Um, yeah, the younger pros I work with and, you know, some of the older juniors, um, especially the younger girls or the, the younger, or the developing females. I think that's... Yeah, I think there's so many great lessons that Ash has, has kind of taught us all that need transferring to the next generation, mate. So that's probably where I'm at. I, I've got two things before we go to our quick fire round at the end. Mm. <laughs> One, I guess I don't know if this is all industries. I can only talk about the tennis industry. The coach management piece is a one that I, I hear, see, feel all the time. And you know, in, in general, what we're looking to do, we're taking the, the coaches that have had the most success coaching and pulling them out of coaching mm, them into yeah. management roles because yeah. management roles are paid higher. And then what you end up doing is you end up losing your best coaches and putting those that have these amazing skill sets as a coach into a place where they don't have it. And, 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 I, and I see it all the time. And I'm mm. sure Colin Beecher won't mind me sharing this story. I, I know that a few years ago, because Colin's a coach, he's a, he's a, he's a coach. At yeah, all. he's a real coach. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's on the ground. And, and, and I think he actually spoke to the LTA and said, look, I could go for one of these management roles that's almost paying double. However, mm. you know, my skill set as being a coach, will you pay me this to be a coach? Now, I don't know exactly what the end was. I think they went with it, but it, it does feel like mm. it is a bit of an industry problem that we have. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, it's definitely a paradox, isn't it? Yeah, you get good at your, your day job and then you end up taking on a different role. Yeah. Um, and it's something that's definitely doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah. So it, it is a bit of an issue, honestly, mate. And I, and I think that's probably why I've struggled in my mind. I think I've struggled to, to probably nail the, that side of my role because I'm still a coach at heart. Um, and I, and I love to coach. Um, yeah. I don't know how you get around it sometimes because again, the other side of it would be you bring in a classic manager who, you know, is really, really good on that side of things, the system side of things. 
that maybe doesn't have the runs on the board. So do people actually give them as much respect? Yeah. And I've yeah. seen it probably work both ways, whether maybe they haven't. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's, that it's, person, that person doesn't know tennis or that person doesn't know S and C. They're just, they're just a systems person. They're a, you know, glorified HR rep or, you know, I've heard that kind of said before as well. So I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the answer, <laughs> but um, <laughs> wish I did. It'd be easy. But yeah, I think it, um, you need a, you need a bit of a passion for both. Yeah. And honestly, yeah, I've kind of sat here and talked about how bad I am at my job on that stuff. Um, but I, I do actually enjoy it. Like when I actually sit down and, and, you know, speak to some of the younger coaches, like that's a really you know, big part of my job. And, and I do, I love doing that. And I don't, and I don't believe for one minute that you're bad at it. You know, I think it's that, it's that, uh, <laughs> Queen, that Queenslander humility coming through again. Um, but in, yeah, in terms of, you said they're all of the lessons and I think a great way for us to finish before we go to the quick fire round, what are the three big lessons that you've, you guys and, and yourself has learned from Ash Barty? Um, yeah, I think definitely be humble. Like she's taught everybody, yeah, that you can be unbelievably great and also be unbelievably humble. Um, continue to, that could be, that we'll call that number one. Uh, number two, just literally apply yourself every day. Um, you know, if you're, if you're not up for it, don't come in. Honestly, if you are up for it, come in and give everything. Yeah. Um, and that's what she was unbelievable at. And she is unbelievable at you. Know, she would come in and give her an exercise and, and she's doing it as well as she can do it. doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter if it's a stretch or a flat out sprint or, you know, a forehand drill, like she's doing it and she's, she's always kind of conscious and, and there. And then I guess, yeah, the tennis, the tennis specific angle of that would be, you know, hitting up and down. So, you know, the warm up. How many players, you know, just go through the motions in the warm-up. Um, yeah, it's a chance to get better and it's a chance to learn. Yeah. And, and again, I never had this conversation with her explicitly, but I, I, you just tell, like, yeah. first ball, she's dialed in. Um, and, and again, that's not just her. That's the best players I know. Yeah. Um, you know, Andy, same. Joe, same. Yeah. All these players, you know, Johnny Millman, James Duckworth, like the best, some of the best players we have in Queensland. Like, yeah. Same thing. They walk on the court and that's one of the biggest lessons that players can learn. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be something you're doing a million miles an hour, but just the intention just to, to get better all the time. Um, and then number three is probably have fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like have fun with it. Like work hard, but also have fun. And yeah. most of it was at my expense, which is fine. That's, uh, I think Matty Little would say the same thing. The SNC is always the whipping boy. <laughs> especially when he's an Englishman who apparently can't catch like she called me out a couple of times on TV around my catching ability which was always fun um, but no like and, and you know you got to learn to laugh at yourself as well and, and she can she can give it as well as she can take it so uh, fun was very high up on the list well very, she's very sounds like she's got some similarities with Andy Murray because I was in yeah. Mad I was in Madrid yeah. a few I was in Madrid a few years ago watching and you know they we were courtside took the kids from the academy there and at the end of their session, they were smacking balls in the air. And it was Shane, the, the physio, yeah. was was, dropping, was dropping the ball. <laughs> and, uh, and he He's was... got less ability than I've got as well. He, cannot, <laughs> he definitely can't catch. He was a swimmer. He can't catch. <laughs> he was getting hammered, absolutely hammered. So maybe the, the, the dark side of these players is rip the piss out of the people around them and it puts them in a good place. But, absolutely. And if it puts them in a good mood, again, that's part of the, it's part of the service it, as a support it, service team. It, but, it, uh, it, nah, it was always... 
it was always good natured and it was always, you know, from a place of respect. So it's, yeah. Beef, that's been brilliant, you know, and, and I know, look, your, your humbleness comes, just shines through. And, and, you know, I don't for one minute think you're going to come off here and think that that's been a good a good podcast, you know, after what you've said. But I, I, I can assure you, I can promise you, that is going to be listened by thousands of people that are going to go, do you know what, what a great, great story, what amazing messages. They're going to, they're going to be jotting them down. You know, you keep doing doing your thing. You know, I'm sure you're, you're impacting more than just the, the former world number one player in the world. And there's there's lots and lots of players and coaches that are benefiting massively from it. So thank you for your time. Uh, but what people, okay. are, what people are really here for today is the quick fire round. This is... Yeah, I'm nervous. This you is didn't mention the, this before. So. This is nothing to be nervous about. Uh, <laughs> it can be as quick or as slow as you want. Um, right. What does control the controllables mean to you? To me, it means, yeah, let's go with a cliche. It means take care of the stuff that you can influence and that maybe other people can't. So, yeah, what does your day-to-day look like? So, yeah, when you get up in the morning, do you, you, know, do, you do the right thing? When you get to the courts, do you do the right things? You know, when you go home from the courts, do you do the right things? Do you go to bed at night? They're things that you can control. Like you don't need any skill or any talent for most of these kind of things. You don't need talent to try hard. You can control that. Very good. Um, yeah. yeah. We we call them the daily bill at the academy. You know, there's a yep. there's a bill to pay every single day if you want to be be successful at anything. I like that. I might steal that. Yeah, t- it's all yours. <laughs> it's all yours. Uh, I owe you. I owe you for coming on. Uh, gym or track? Can I say gym and court? <laughs> you can. You can. I'll go, uh, I'll go gym and court. Yeah. If I had to lose one, I'd lose the track. Your favourite Grand Slam? It's got to be Wimbledon. Still Wimbledon, isn't it? Oh, yeah. you're, you're working in Australia. That's yeah. uh, nah, it's Wimbledon. <laughs> it, it's never not going to be Wimbledon. <laughs> uh, my, I, I had this one in, but you, 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 I was hoping to surprise you with this one, but you've, you've managed to already uh, bring it up. I, I had, can you catch? Can I catch? If you ask me, yes. If you ask some others around, maybe not. Uh, Roger or Rafa? So it used to be Roger the whole time, but with with what Rafa's doing now, I'm going to have to say Rafa. Honestly, yeah, he's, a, he's an animal. Yeah. Serena or Venus? Serena. She's had better outcomes. Yeah, she's managed to do it for longer. 2022 French Open champions, male and female. Can't go past Eager. She's gonna. She's got to win. Yeah, Eager's Eager's not. She's unbelievable. Amazing. Um, we were actually very lucky to spend a bit of time around her. I mean, her and Ash got on very, very well and practiced yeah. a lot together. Um, and yeah, she's a she's unbelievable. And, and I, I don't think I'm jumping the gun to say that Ash would be delighted that you know Eager took over. Honestly, yeah. I think um, she's fantastic, and she's taking the physicality to the next level as well. So yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, that way, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say Rafa. Even though I, I want it to be Rafa, even though I think Alcaraz or, or Novak might. Is Alcaraz ready? Uh, did anyone think Rafa was ready? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's. I think he is. I think yeah. Alcaraz is ready. So do Personally. I, but, uh, but I think he's also got Rafa and 
Novak in the way, yeah, potentially. Whereas yeah. maybe Rafa at that age didn't. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I think probably Rafa. Yeah. yeah. But no, I'm with it. Well, I know I'm an SSC coach. <laughs> yeah. uh, eager, eager spent two weeks at, the, at our academy, the sort of tennis academy, mm. before the last clay court season last year. Uh, so we got to know Eager and the team team very well, and I I I couldn't agree more. You know, she lives all of those values. Yeah. You know, she's she's putting it in. You know, really interesting to see as well, like how much she did around the mind and physical together as well. You know, loads of loads of interesting things that she was doing. Um, yeah. And and yeah, she's she's taken it to another level the last mm. few months. So it's going to be. I think yeah. she'll, she'll she's going to take some some stopping. Yeah, actually, I, I think um, yeah, her Paula Bedosa, you know, Maria Sakari, like they're actually you know even Emma, like she's yeah, actually. Yeah. Phenomenally good athlete. I think uh, next couple of years is going to be pretty cool because I think it's going to be some, the way I see it, the best athlete to kind of rising to the top as well mm. as the best tennis players. So, absolutely. Um, absolutely. No, it's interesting. Medical timeout or not? Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, yes. Yes. Because I still trust that some players are still, they still need a little bit of, of something. Okay. But God, I'm there. Yeah. 49 on that one yeah let or no let uh let why yeah the technology is good enough to pick it up at the top level yeah. i understand yeah. it at juniors and at like ncaa and stuff because people cheat <laughs> like i do get that yeah so I, I actually agree with that but i think at the top level technology is good enough to pick it up and if you have you you know obviously you know mid-rally you can lose in in luck but off a serve i think it's really really tough so i think yeah definitely at top level keep it what's one rule change you would have in tennis Mate, i'd love to see women play five sets from the quarterfinals onwards in grand slams would they be up for it i think so yeah, yeah. i'd love to see that i think it'd be awesome yeah yeah i'd love to see you know sakari and and eager go at it for five sets i think that would be unbelievable yeah um, and i think the case if you build it and they'll come as well like people will rise to the, the challenge i think and they'll also have to then pay even more attention to the physical conditioning side of it um so yeah that's that's one thing i'd love to see let's do it let's get it on yeah and and who should our next guest be on control the controllables before, well, you, had Lou, yeah. before you answer you play a role in handing the baton over so somebody said Roger Federer, and I said, "Well, just call him." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you can help me, you know. <laughs> um, um, do you know what I'm going to say? Actually, a guy I work with, I'm going to throw him under the bus. Um, Gabriel Echeverria. So he's our he's our physical performance coach in Melbourne. Yeah, he works yep. with a bunch of our pro players down there. I'm going to say that. Yeah, Let's... and I'll try and I'll see if I can sort him out, get him on. Get it, let's let's get it on. And the, the other one I really want on, and I, I our our sports psychologist is Australian, who he, he consults at the at the academy, and he he used to work with Ash when she was young, and he always talked, and, and he brought Rob Barty on to do a mm -hmm. to do a talk, and he and he yeah. did he, he did a talk at the academy, and he was amazing. He was absolutely amazing. So he's a, he's a one that I think from a parental side. You know, yeah. would is 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 an amazing 
yeah. ex- example, a benchmark, a benchmark of how to be a tennis parent, you know, and he, is. Yeah, he, he absolutely is because yeah. it, it's, it's such a, it's such a charm. And I'm actually my coach, but I'm a tennis parent as well. My son plays mm. and it's, yeah. it, it's a very, very challenging, very challenging role to play. Um, so if there's any, if there's any little conversations to be had then there as well, we would love to, we would love to get Rob on as well. And I'm sure the listeners would benefit a lot from that. If you do, yeah, you do a great job. He's, um, he's spoken to a lot of tennis parents in, in Queensland in particular, and they always, yeah, his message yeah. is fantastic. So, very good. Uh, yeah, he would be a very good guest. You've been amazing. Thank you. You know, good luck. Keep it, keep up, keep up the great work. And, uh, and yeah, thanks so much on behalf of all the listeners for coming on as well. No problem, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it. If you are listening, Mark, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you. Love that conversation. And honestly, Vicky, I think I think I could have been talking to Ash Barty. You know, the just the the humility and the the way that he was. It it really did go to show just we hear heard it all the time. We, we, we've done this, we've done that, and we the humility that came through loud and clear from Ash. But Mark just echoed all of that exactly the same. Zero arrogance, zero ego about it all. Just very matter of fact. Um, He talked about her high standards, but the low demand that she puts on her coaches, it was just all, it was all very relaxed how he described the setup of it and, and, and how he spoke the whole way through, I thought. It was interesting because he kept saying he wasn't comfortable in certain aspects of his role, including, you know, talking to you on a podcast, but he spoke so well. Yeah, he did. I, I think it brings up a bigger, it's, it's, it, I've reflected on it a little bit, actually, and I think we are in a sport, and I go back to Keith Reynolds, Keith Reynolds, brilliant, brilliant podcast, a brilliant episode if you haven't listened to it, but Keith talks talks a lot about this in, in terms of, you go to a tournament, 127 people lose, and there's 127 people going back and blaming their coaches and firing their coaches. And and I guess the more security you have in your level, the the less you then look to actually blame because it, the coaches and the fitness coaches aren't the ones that are making the tennis player. They're playing a role. It's important, but it's it's nowhere near the defining factor. And And, and I think... So many parents listening to this and players listening to this. If you are constantly looking at a reason why your child or your player isn't having the success you think they should, I would suggest looking a bit closer to home and and getting a little bit more security in yourself. Because Ash Barty, three-time Grand Slam winner, played also professional cricket, arguably could play a professional golf as well. You know, all-round good person. You'd go for a beer with her, you know, quite happily. You know, she would quite happily go for a beer as well. And she isn't feeling like she needs to have a fitness coach with her every minute of every day. You know, because she knows it's, it's not that it's not important, but she knows herself and she knows that actually I've got my routines and any help I do get is massively appreciated. And I just think it, it's such a, if we, if we stop and think about the way our industry do, is, it's full of desperation, you know, and I think, I think that brings out the worst in, worst in lots of people. And by, by saying you want it more, doesn't mean that you'll 
you've got more chance, you know, just by by just going about your daily business, there, there might be someone that ends up, like Ash Barty was, end up being one of the best players in the world, you know, but you, you can't jump around and try and force that issue because it's just not, it's not for some people to be to be a certain level and I think it can't be the only reason why people play play the sport and and unfortunately we see it time and time again with parents with players that it's the only reason so then you're constantly going to be looking at the bad in people I think and and I just I thought it was so refreshing to see a guy and you see him on telly all the time he's gone through all of these amazing celebrations he's just say yeah just yeah yeah she just gets in touch with me and we just yeah, go and just have the piss taken out of me for an hour or two and <laughs> get her to do a couple of exercises and that's it. And it's obviously more than that. He's underplaying it. But I think it's a really nice to see that humility in, in, in a sport that I don't think is filled with humility. We said that was um, one of his bits of advice, didn't he, to up-and-coming S&C coaches, understanding that his role is a support and it's not the main event, as he called it. Absolutely. And, and the more... The more someone has that attitude, the better they are. <laughs> because because it being in a being in a team and being around players, being being in, in a in a coaching team, you want to work with people that aren't going head on ego to ego and taking away the limelight. You know, you want to be working with people that just know their job, know their role, get it done, do it in a really in a really nice way and a really pleasant to have around. And and we, we talked about it with Matt Little as well, didn't we? And it's not taken anything away from the the hard skills that these guys have. You know, they are absolute experts in their field and if they weren't, they would get found out. But it's the soft skills that are getting them into the roles that they have because the players and the coaches like having them around. He said, I mean, it's, it's going back to the team sport thing, I think as well, you know, Ash Barty played cricket, grew up playing in teams. He said he grew up playing football, yeah, rugby, uh, rowing, all kind of team sports. And I think having that as a, as a child, you get used to working in that team environment. And, and working together and not, and not being selfish. I, I think tennis is fundamentally selfish, you know, and that's, it's coaches, parents, players and listeners I love all of you guys but it's if you look yourself in the mirror I think you will see that more often than not you you're making selfish decisions which you can't blame because why does little Charlie's dad care about little Billy you know whereas in a football team little Charlie's dad has to care about little Billy because it affects it affects how the team does yeah so so but we have it with with the coaches we bring to the academy and it's you know, bringing, bringing self-employed coaches who have run their own businesses into an academy setup where we have employed coaches trying to work towards a culture and a team, it does take a bit of getting used to, you know, because fundamentally, and that doesn't mean that we've had a lot of amazing coaches, but they would admit it themselves. They've never had to really think of anybody else because in our sport, that's the way it's every person out for themselves a little bit. And I, yeah, I just think it's so refreshing. I actually think it's quite sad that she's stopped playing at 25. I, I absolutely admire her for doing it her way. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's something that, you know, many of us don't do in life. So I completely admire that. But I think she's a big, big miss 
Um, oh, absolutely. You know, there's there's plenty more players out there that'll take that mantle. Uh, but yeah, just just a great, honest, humble guy. You know, well done, Mark, in, in all you're doing and, and just stay, stay yourself, stay yourself. And I think all of us can, can learn lots of lessons from you. We've talked in previous episodes as well about, he mentioned giving, working for free um, to kind of learn his trade. And you could tell as he was telling the story, I mean, doing that just properly kick-started his career, really. The contacts he made, the experience that he got. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got, I've got two points on this. I think the first point is I completely agree at, at the start of your career or when you're moving up in certain in certain parts of the career. My second part is I think it's too much of the norm in tennis. I think too often in tennis, coaches don't value themselves enough and their time enough. And I think there's an expectation that coaches are working for free too much. I know that's something I've certainly done loads over the years. And at the tender age of 42, I'm starting to go, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, if I'm not spending time with the family, if I'm not doing this, then it, it needs to be it needs to be covered. So so I think it's it's yes, in principle, it's something that is very important and not enough people are willing to to build those networks, they've got too high of expectations at first. Uh, but at the same time as an industry, I think we have to be careful that as an industry that becomes the expectation that as you're going through your career, that, that players, parents who, who, are, who are technically the employers think that they can get coaches for free or for cheap or for, you know, because because at the same time on that, I, I think I think that's wrong. And I think that happens way too much in the sport as well. It's invaluable though, isn't it? At the start of a career, he talked about Louis Kaye, Matt Little and the impact that, they, that they'd that they had on him and how much he'd learnt from them. Two um, guests as well on Control the Controllables and two amazing episodes actually. Louis Kaye is still the most listened to episode, number one downloaded. Downloaded or downstreamed? <laughs> Talking about a tennis pitch. Um, um, but yeah, both, if you haven't listened to them, I would really recommend going back. Louis Caillé is number 102 and uh, Matt Little was 136. Two awesome episodes. Yeah, and I think a massive learning, again, in however many episodes we've done now, it's, it's it, one of my big takeaways is the importance of getting a mentor you know none of us none of us know you know until we you know we're going into the unknown all the time and you know having someone who you trust around you who who's who's been there seen it done it before is is such a massive massive help and you know I, I would I would advise any coaches out there not just young coaches any coaches out there find yourself someone who who you really trust and 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 will challenge you, you know, to be able to move your career forward. And, uh, you know, mentors really do go a long way. These people who are in these roles, jobs, doing doing incredible things, it's not necessarily that they're much better at what they do, but they've been really good at finding the right people. And then because of that, finding the right opportunities and learning very fast. So I think another great lesson there for everybody out there. 
But uh, yeah, but as I said at the start, a big thank you to Mark, brilliant, brilliant guest, and you know, value everything that you know came out came out of that. And I hope you guys are enjoying as you're looking forward to a a summer of tennis with Roland Garros and then Wimbledon not far away as well. And by the time this goes out, Roland Garros is going to have started, and we'll just be getting back from holiday. But Mark gave his uh, picks for um, his winners. Who are you going for? I, of the last two years, gone against Rafael Nadal, which, take emotion away from it, it's crazy. <laughs> He's won 14 Roland Garros out of 16 years. You know, so it, from a, a, a complete objective standpoint, I don't know how you can go against Rafael Nadal. That being said... <laughs> You're going to do it again. Djokovic I find really hard to go against as well I, I, I think if you don't mind I'm going to say one of them too oh no you never allow <laughs> anyone to do that you have to pick one that's the rule but well okay that's my first thing I think it'll be one of the old boys I don't think it'll be an up and comer not yet not so, yet give us a name so my name if I was pushed would I'd have to go with Rafa yeah and the women's I think Iga is the big, 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 big favourite. I think she's just had... I think she's had an incredible, incredible year. I think she's taken it up a step. And I'm going to say Iga to play against Ons Joubert in the final. And Iga's going to come out as the Roland Garros champion 2022. All right. See, we're at a disadvantage here because we haven't seen the draws yet. The draws are not yet out as we're recording this. So um, I was also going to say... Rafa and Iga so that's boring to say the same so I will go Alcaraz um, and I would love to see Sakari win her first Grand Slam I know you're shaking your head it's not I didn't say I'm going to back her to win I would love to see Sakari um, at least get to the final um, but she's, she's been done here, so <laughs> she's, she's basically if Rafa or Alcaraz wins she's protected herself here and now she's said like about four different women's <laughs> names as well. Like, this I have is... said too. I, I think she's got so close so many times in the big matches and she's so entertaining to watch. She's a brilliant athlete. I would love to see her do well on the clay. Anywhere, actually. But, but, but hold on. It's a very <laughs> different question from who you'd like to see do well. Well, okay. I'll, well, I, you, I think Eager. Okay. But I, I was trying to just spice it up a bit. I think Eager and Rafa. Okay, there you go. But I would yeah. like Alcaraz and Sakari also. Okay. I like all four of them. Because I'd like Dan Evans to win it. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I would love Dan Evans to win it. Warwickshire boy. I'd love Ryan Peniston or Liam Brody to come through qualifying. <laughs> you know, like, it's... Uh, uh, but uh, good luck to all the Brits, I mean, as well. Yes. Like, they were, there's, there's going to be a good few of them in there. And, and uh, I know a few of the boys sneaking into the qualifying draws as well. So, yeah, so good luck. Um, and, well... I hope they've already qualified by the time this goes out. But hope everyone's well. We will be back next week with another amazing guest. Enjoy the French Open. Enjoy the clear courts, the dirty socks, the the long rallies, the French groans in the crowd. And we will be back next week. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.